Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Heavenly Father, I do just pray for the next few weeks in the life of our church, the life of our city, the life of our world. Father, as we move towards that day when we get to celebrate the fact that Christ has lived, Christ has died, and Christ has risen. Father, that's true now. Father, we we live in light of the victory of Jesus right now and all that that means for us and the promise of a future that is forever with him. Father, might that the glorious truth of his grace just wash over us over the next few weeks and just renew us from the inside out that we might be able to come and celebrate boldly, that we might proclaim your goodness to to our city, Father. That, that Father, we just pray that people would be saved, that those who don't know you would come to know you for the first time, that those who are hiding, Father, would be brought out into the open and that their sins would be forgiven. Father, that the burdens that they carry would become light because of Jesus. They would see, they would see how much you love them in the person and the work of Jesus. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. We are getting close to the end of this series on uh, the life of David. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 23 today. And so if you want to turn there, I'm actually going to start in the New Testament, uh, something that uh, we see about David in the book of Acts. Acts 13.36 says this, it's actually in the middle of a sermon, but it says, For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried and passed away from the face of the earth. That's a summary statement of David's life. That's all it says in there about David was that what David couldn't do, Jesus did. And it goes on to make a greater point. But I think about that statement of of David and what it says about his life and the reality that, man, we all are here, but for a moment, and then we're buried and we pass away. But you notice what it does say. The one kind of fact that, that it highlights, that it makes sure we see about David For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. Friends, did you know that we all have a purpose? That that every human being on the planet has a purpose for being here and that you have a a generation and and a time and a place that you live in that God wants to work through you for his good on the earth and for the good of others. And it'd be interesting to me, I had seen this once before and Um, if you take that statement and scan back and put yourself into that, like if you just said four and you filled in your name and you put your name there for, for you, after you had served the purpose of God in your generation, fell asleep and was buried and passed away from the earth. Friends, do you know your purpose? See, the great tragedy would be that we would, that we would pass away not ever having known the purpose that God had for our lives that we might serve him in our generation, that we might not ever realize, we might not ever wake up to the invitation to be used by God for the good of our world and for for his glory. 
And so we might wander through our days and just make it through one page of our daytime to the next. If you're old school or one uh, swipe of the calendar on your phone, uh, going from one week to another to another and not ever be awakened to the fact that God has you in this time in this place so that you might serve him for his glory and for the good of others. But friends, as we look at this today, I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to think about this question. When the, when the years wind down for you, will you wonder why you were here? Or will you be able to look back at the ways that God allowed you to serve him for his glory and for the good of our, of our city and our world? What, what is the crux for you? What is the thing that you're holding on to in that? So as we get to 2 Samuel 23, and we're going to look at what is called the last words of David. And as we come to the end of this, we've got just a couple weeks uh, left in this series. And I hope this has really deepened your love for God, your love for his word. As we've, as we've leaned in and looked at the life of David, I know it has for me. And uh, it's been a joy for me to look at this. And I, I love this section. And I love this, this passage and the way that David summarizes what he's learned in the course of his life in these seven verses. So chapter 23, verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to, pro will he not cause to grow all my salvation and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and with a shaft of a spear, for they are utterly consumed with fire. So these are what we call the last words of David. And I don't want you to get too morbid here. This isn't like deathbed breathing out my last little statement sort of a thing. Uh, this is more of like, this is my last message I want to give you. This is the concluding summary that I want to make sure you know. This is the, the, the kind of my understanding and the summation of the way God has worked in my life and everything he's taught me. And I want to declare that truth to you. And that's what it means by the last words. And so in this, uh, what we see is that this is what David thinks is the most important thing that he wants to communicate to his family and to God's people. And to me, it raises a question for us. What is, what is your last word? When you think about the people that, that you love, your friends and your family, when you think about those that are around you, what's the last word, the last message that you want them to hear from you that says, when you look at your life and say, let me give you a snapshot of everything God's done in my life. Let me just present that, that truth to you. And you share that last word with them. Do you have a last word? Do you, do you know what yours would be? I think it's interesting to me when you look at David, look at me at how he describes himself. And the first, uh, David's going to rip off several phrases that he describes himself uh, to, to people. And the, the first phrase says, it says that he's the son of Jesse. And I love that that's where he starts. And this is going to, these four kind of phrases honestly provide a progression that David's going to kind of build on this conversation. He starts off and says, I'm David, I'm a son of Jesse. Really what it says is, man, I'm just a man. I'm just a guy. 
I'm, I'm a child of a dude named Jesse. I'm a guy who uh, is used to chasing sheep and running around the countryside. And I'm just, I'm just a man. And in some ways, I'm nothing special. And so there's this common ground that he says is, and there's humanity. We, we all are on the same place. And I'm just like you. I'm just, a, I'm just another guy. You ever notice with your kids that when you're little, they kind of look up to you, they idolize you, they run to the door when you come through and all those things. And then they become teenagers. And when they become teenagers, they start to realize like, oh, you're just a dude. Like you're, you know, you're, you're I mean, they still look up to you, they respect you, God willing, and uh, on a good day. But, but generally they don't worship you the way they did when they were little. And then David cuts through that at the beginning and just says, hey, I'm just a man, I'm the son of Jesse. Look at the next phrase that he uses. He says, I'm a man who was raised on high. Now here's what's interesting. This raised on high really refers to the, his inauguration, his anointing as king. And what we see here is that David believes in the sovereign grace of God. That, that he, you notice this is a passive statement. He didn't say, man, I climbed and clawed my way to the top. No, what he says was, I'm just a man who was raised up. I was exalted by God. I was lifted up by God. It's an act of grace. God took the initiative. God chose me. God exalted me. God lifted me up. God made me king when I was just a shepherd boy running around in the, in the hills chasing sheep. It's a man who believes in the sovereign grace of God. He wasn't born on high. He didn't work his way to the heights. He was lifted up in an act of grace. And God elevated him. Look at the next phrase. He says, I'm the, the God of, uh, I'm anointed of the God, of, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, this is an interesting choice. In some ways, that, that phrase, God of Jacob, is one we see all throughout the Old Testament that just means that, that I am an heir of this people called Israel that God set apart through the sons of Jacob. And so in some ways, it's a common title that's there, but it's interesting that he's anointed by the God of Jacob. Now, if you know anything about Jacob, Jacob was kind of a mess. He was a deceiver. He was a guy who actually kind of snaked his way in. He, in a famous story, wrestled with the Lord and said, you're gonna have to bless me and I'm not gonna let you go. And God said, okay, I will, but boom. And he gave him a limp to walk with the rest of his life and said, I just want you to remember who's in charge here, right? Like you can chase after me, you can wrestle me, you can do what you want, but I can reach my finger out and limp, you, you'll limp the rest of your life because I'm the sovereign Lord. And so part of what David's saying by, I'm being anointed by the God of Jacob is that God takes broken, twisted material like a Jacob and he transforms them and does something good in his life. And so I'm anointed by the God who takes broken, messy, raw material and transforms it and makes it into something beautiful. I'm anointed by, that, by a God that can do that kind, of a, that kind of a thing. Now here's what's interesting for me. This is an important distinction in Christianity. See, we live in a world that constantly is pushing against that, that makes it a little bit hard. There's a little bit of a tug of war in our world because our world says not that we are fallen or that we are sinful or that we are broken, but it says that really our appetites, our desires, all those things ought to be embraced and affirmed. And so anything that's in you is good. And, and this pushed back for David against the kings of Egypt at that time. The kings of Egypt believed that they were divine. And so they were perfect and good. And yet um, for David, he's coming and saying, look, no, I'm just a man and I'm a man in need of grace and I'm a man that needs God's transforming work in my life. But that's true of us as well. That part of what Christianity says is that we're all messy people like Jacob, like David, and we need to be transformed by the goodness of, of God, uh, God who does that kind of work as well. 
But you see that he was anointed. That means that he was the designated ruler, that David and his descendants were those that were chosen and designated to rule as God's representative. And there's a, we're gonna see a little bit later, there's a future ruler from that line of David that's gonna be incredibly important, not just to him, but to us as well. Notice the, the last phrase that David uses to describe himself here is he says that I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. Man, isn't that great? A psalmist is a worshiper. David's saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worshiper of the one true God. Now, do you see the progression here? David starts, this is, this is what David says is my highest call. This is the, the greatest thing I get to do is that I get to worship God. He starts off in the progression. He says, look, I'm just a man, but I'm a man who's experienced God's grace. I'm a man who's set apart as a ruler by God's anointing. And so I've got a place of importance as a ruler where I'm to serve God and, and continue his mission on earth. But even beyond the fact that I'm a king and ruler is the privilege I have to be a worshiper of the one true God. That's the thing that drives him more than anything else and more than anything in his life. He says, uh, more than a ruler, more than a man, more than a, even a grace he says, I get to worship Yahweh. And he does that, he says, primarily through singing. And he calls himself a psalmist. We might say that he's the greatest singer songwriter in, uh, uh, among God's people. Um, as, as he calls himself the sweet psalmist. So that's kind of his self-portrait, his description of his life. And do you, do you kind of get the flavor that when he says, this is my last word, this is what I'm about, and I'm just a man in need of grace that God used to serve his purposes, and, and I get to be ultimately the one who worships and orients my life around the Lord. So verses two to three, he's gonna talk about the grounds of his confidence. You notice he, the, the phrases that are repeated there. He says, the spirit of the Lord speaks to me, that his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said. This is about divine revelation. Has made known to me that, that which I'm speaking. And so this isn't just something that I'm pulling out of the back of my brain or I'm just kind of like had some bad pizza and I wanna pull some word out and throw it at you. No, he's saying God has communicated and spoken something to me and I'm making that known. That's why I can be so confident. That's why I don't have to kind of hedge my bets and, and, and dilly-dally around. I can speak truth. If it's God's word, it's a sure word and it can be counted upon. And that was important then. It's important to us now too, isn't it? That God's word is the thing that we, that we have to stand upon. See, the, the, the circumstances of our lives will toss us in all kinds of different directions. It's interesting, the thing about divine revelation that we need to understand is that anything, any attempts to disregard or diminish divine revelation are counterproductive. In fact, David's gonna go on and say they're, they're actually dangerous and, and destructive that anyone that would speak against the word of God is actually gonna do something that would destroy the goodness and the flourishing that he wants to bring in the world. And so we have to stand on that which is true. Now, here's what I think we need to acknowledge is that we all seek, we all seek sources of authority for the decisions we make in life, don't we? I mean, if you're, gonna, if, if you're gonna prepare a meal, oftentimes you'll pull your phone up and you'll look for a recipe and say, well, and, and, you know, and I tend to look and go, well, if, you know, 82,000 people in the New York Times said this recipe is great. I can probably trust it. And so I'll try that. We look for sources of authority in life, but the reality in this circumstance is David's saying that, that the reason I can trust what God has said or trust the, the path that I'm on is because God has spoken in this. But think about other sources we look for. People base their lives on highly intellectual arguments. We base our lives on psychedelic experiences. Heard an interview someone and they said, man, I had this psychedelic experience and it told me everything I needed to do in life. Um, people base their, 
their lives on political ideologies, on my gut appetites and instincts. We base our ideology, we base our, our life choices on, on family history, on sexual identity, on all these different things, but none of those are a trustworthy source of authority for our lives. We have to look to God and to his word. And David tells us where to go for truth. You notice he says that the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said. So David is kind of of this mindset that just says, look, if God said it, that's enough. I can trust it and I can depend upon it and I'm gonna rest on that. And he talks about the rock of Israel. It's like a strong rock of a mountain that you can count on that's dependable and trustworthy. That in, in the seasons, as they change throughout days, you always look over and go, yeah, but the mountain's still there. I can still count on that mountain. It's not going anywhere. Uh, I can set, I, I, can, I, can, I can depend upon that. And that's, friends, we need to know an unchanging, strong, dependable God. Do you know the Lord is the rock of your life? Like, have you found that to be true? Have you found the steadiness of the Lord as your rock, personally, experientially, in the course of your life? I can just tell you, there's going to be times, uh, I'm going to be an older man, so I can speak in some of these things, right? Uh, yeah, you don't have to amen that. So, well, that's the only amen I get today, is like, I'm an older man. They're like, amen, preach it, brother. Like, that's the one thing y'all agreed with today. We got issues here. All right, we're going to have to talk about this. Now, uh, but there's some reality. Like, as you get a little bit further in life, you see these things, and you understand that, man, as you, there's just going to be times in life where you're going to be spread so thin, there's going to be times in life where hope is going to seem far away. There's going to be times in life where you're going to look around and go, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know what is best and I'm not sure of the path ahead. And you need something dependable. You need a rock that you can depend on. And what we need to do is we need to run to the Lord who is that rock. We need to run to his word. And millions of people over thousands of years have found him trustworthy. And I have found him trustworthy and you can too. But there'll be days when you need him. And rarely, friends, will our circumstances give us certainty, but we can have certainty in the Lord. We can count on him. Not for everything we want to know, but for everything we need to trust him in the middle of that. And friends, and in the latest fads, in all the ickisms and spasms that come and go from one generation to the next, God is still here. And you look back and you can see from one generation to the next, the next idea that comes that says, we're gonna have progress, we're gonna have movement, we're gonna have something good. And they, they offer this thing and then it fades away, but the rock still stands. And we need to be able to trust the Lord in that. Notice in verse three and four, David's gonna turn, he's gonna talk about the, the blessing of God. And he's talking about one who rules. And he says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them. He's gonna use this image. I want you to catch kind of this threefold, threefold image uh, that, that, that he uses. He says, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What's he talking about? He's talking about growth, renewal, refreshment, something good. What do you need to make anything grow in our world? And you need, you need light, uh, you need rain, you need soil, and you need grass. Uh, you, and then you're going to produce something good. There's going to be growth. But he talks about a ruler. He's talking about a ruler who rules justly. And so a king who rules just as God would rule. And so a king who rules in righteousness. And that makes sense, right? That a king, um, he says, rules in the fear of God. And, and when you think about fear of God, we, we, we kind of tend to think of fear as something different. You might, also, you might actually be able to translate that as a king who rules in the worship of God. 
is the way we, we, might, we might say it, we might think of it. Because when he talks about fear of God, what he's saying is a king who puts God in his rightful place as the ruler above him. He says, look, you're above me. You're more powerful. I'm underneath you. And so there's an order to the universe and you're on top, not me. Even though I'm a ruler, even though I'm a king, you're the one on top. And this makes sense that, to think that this is what God would say or David would say brings blessing. That when you have a ruler or a king who honors God and keeps God in his proper place above himself, you can have a good rule. But when we get that out of order, we get in trouble, don't we? And when you think about it, uh, the only healthy king is one who answers to a higher authority. The only healthy king is one who sees himself and yields his life to the leadership of God and to his word and to that which is good and right and true and just. And when a king revolts against that and rebels against that, that's when a, king, that's when a man's in trouble when, and that's when a nation's in trouble. But a righteous king is a blessing to all. So think about this, this image and what he's, what he's communicating to him. And I, I love just the simplicity of it. Of, and it's just a clear morning. It's a good day. The, the sun's coming up over, uh, over the horizon and there's dew on the ground. And as the sun begins to heat things up, the stuff begins to grow. And, and he's saying that, that it, the presence of a righteous king brings about those things which are necessary for reviving, for renewing, for, um, for growth. And a good king renews and refreshes those he's over. Now, these words are not just to look back to what God's done through David and kind of a, a call to say, David, you know, all, all the sons of David that follow after him need to be sure that they're just and they rule and are a blessing too, although it certainly says that. But it's actually a little bit bigger than that. He actually is looking for, forward to a future um, ruler who is a fulfillment of the everlasting covenant that the Lord already gave to David. We saw it in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 says, and this is God promising David in the Davidic covenant, he says, your house and your kingdom shall be made forever, made for, uh, sorry, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It speaks prophetically of a final ruler who would come in the line of David named Jesus, who's gonna rule over the, over the house of David, but over all the earth. And it's talking about the Messiah that's coming. And so this is ultimately David kind of looking ahead to a ruler from his line that would do something even greater than what he did. In fact, Revelation 1 points us back to this. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, that's the resurrection, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God and the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. And ever. David wants everyone to know where his allegiance lies. He says, look, my allegiance is not just to the goodness that I have done, but my allegiance is to a future ruler that's going to come who's going to do even greater things in, on the earth. Notice verse 5. David kind of stakes his claim. And, and he says, for does, my, does not my house stand so with God? And this is a confident conviction, isn't it? There's some resolve to what he says. He looks and says, and it kind of reminds us of, of, of uh, um, Joshua earlier on in the Old Testament where Joshua just said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And David's making a similar stance. He says, look, if you look at my house, is this not where we've taken our stand? That we've taken our stand on God's provided king and what he's done? And so there's a sense of resolve here, but it's because of God's promise. It's because of the covenant that David knows he's safe. Look at the, the phrase that it uses. It says, for he has made an everlasting covenant promise to me and he's ordered in all things and secure. Uh, you know, this phrase where it says it's ordered, in all, ordered and secure, it's a legal phrase. And what he's saying is God 
crossed his T's and dotted his I's and made sure this thing was signed, sealed, delivered. Everything's bound up and there, there are no loopholes here. God has promised me in this covenant and he will deliver it. I'm safe, I'm secure. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to wring my hands. I don't have to run around looking for ways to make sure I'm not getting, he's not getting one over on me. I'm safe and secure because God's promise is sure. And so I can trust him. And this isn't lottery scratch, scratch off hoping he's gonna win. God didn't give him a promise going, well, let's see if you're one of the lucky ones. No, God said, this is an everlasting promise and I will bring it to fruition. And you've seen the movie True Grit. Um, love, love the film. Um, love the second version better than the first. This is a rare time when the second version of a movie is way better than the first. And that's hard to say because John Wayne was in the first one, uh, but John Wayne didn't have the Coen brothers directing. So that was a problem. But really the first one took a lot of the spiritual depth out of it. The, the second one, just has this spiritual depth and reality that kind of runs through it. And here's why I bring that up. There was an old hymn I'd forgotten about. And if you listen in the, in the movie, this old hymn plays in the background over the top of the whole movie. And it just runs like a thread through the whole thing. And there's this kind of tension that's there that goes, and are you gonna seek vengeance and, and try to carve your own way? Or are you gonna depend upon the Lord? And the hymn that plays over the back of the whole thing is leaning on the everlasting arms. And it's a song I forgot whenever I hear it. Honestly, I hear my grandmother's voice and she had this high pitched voice and kind of that old style and she kind of let it belt over at First Baptist Church of Chandler, Oklahoma. Uh, but look at, with me at the words of this song because I think, and I don't know that the, this song came out of these verses, but it very well could have because it rings straight out of some of the language here. But it's leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning on the everlasting arms. And there's this, this thread that runs through there that says, what do I have to fear? What do I have to fret? What do I have to worry about? I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure, as long as I'm leaning on something everlasting and it's the everlasting promise of God himself. That's what David's saying in, in his last words is, God's given me an everlasting covenant promise that I can trust and I can just lean into that and it's ordered and secure and I'm safe and I don't have to worry anymore. So he goes on in the end of verse five and he says, um, for, uh, for will he not cause, my, cause to prosper all my help and my desire? You might actually translate that a little differently. That, that word to prosper means to grow or to sprout or to spring up. And so it's not just this prosperous, prosperity the way we would think about it, but he's saying, would God not cause to grow or sprout up all my help and my desire? The word help is actually a word that means deliverance or salvation uh, or rescue or my welfare. And so I, I would actually translate that a little differently and say, will God not cause to grow my salvation and my desire? Will he not breathe life into me? Will he not, like the dew of the morning and the bright dawn sun, cause something good to grow up and sprout up in me? And it's my salvation and my desires and everything in me. God's gonna work at the core of who I am to bring about something good. And do you see what he's saying? Will God not cause my salvation and my desire to increase? Well, of course he will. God's made me with an everlasting covenant, safe and secure. He's promised to deliver me to a place of, 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 human, of complete and total and whole flourishing of human life. 
And David wants that to be the story that he tells as he thinks about his last words. Friends, let me ask you this. Do you tell your story? Do you have a story? Can you say with David that God is causing my salvation and my desire to grow? And it's the desire is the desire for the Lord, the desire to be with him, the desire to connect with him, the desire to grow as a worshiper. And here's the thing for me. Do you know where your, where your greatest desire lies? And do you tell people, and God has saved me, God's delivered me? Because they need to hear, they need to hear you say it. Um, do your kids know how you were saved? Um, do your parents know? Do your friends know? Do your coworkers know that Christ is your salvation, your deliverance, your security? That he's birthed and begun something and caused it to sprout up in you? Do they know that Christ is your greatest desire, that you want him more than anything else? Do they know that Jesus is better than the hard stuff and Jesus is better than your greatest victories? That Jesus is the supreme point of your life? Paul says it this way in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And he's saying of all the stuff of earth, if I could just go be with Jesus, that would be far better than anything else. That's my greatest desire, Paul says. Philippians 1, Philippians 3, he says, he goes on and says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And forgetting all the junk that I had to leave behind, I'm gonna press on and strive and fight and run after Jesus because that's the greatest prize. And it's interesting, as you get older, the desires you have begin to change. Like the stuff that you worry about or worried about, you look back and go, eh. Like the songs that you thought were so killer in high school, now I listen to the words and I'm like, really, we sing that, I knew all those words. Like I invested a lot of energy making sure I knew all those, all those words and now like none of them are true. And I don't even, they're not even, they don't even rhyme right. You know, like there's a lot of the stuff you, you built your life around and you look back now and you're like, yeah, I don't know. But as you get older, life just changes. I mean, one, your body starts to change, right? Like stuff starts to hurt. I had to rent a car not too long ago and it was like a little bitty car to get down in there. I was like, this could be dangerous. Like you start thinking a little differently. I mean, you used to put your arm up like this and stuff went up and now it just goes down. Like these things begin to change and your life begins to look a little differently. My wife and I try to do marriage retreats every year. And in that, we've got a book and we record kind of our highs and lows and things we prayed for and things that, that we wanted to change. And some of the things we wanted to change, you get to year 13, you're like, yeah, I should probably just leave that one there. Like that value is never gonna change. It's just what it is. And you kind of move on, but there's other stuff you look there. And I remember, and we go back and look at prayer requests and stuff that we had when we were just getting married, or when we first got married and stuff that, man, our our hearts were wrapped around these things and worried and so stressed out. And now we look at it and go, wow, that, that just, that isn't even a thing. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like you just look back and your desires change. And some of those things begin to shift. And, and so I think what I see here in Paul saying, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward what lies ahead, is that as you grow, as you mature, as you get a deep, meaningful life with Christ, it changes the, your perspective and the way you do things. Can I hammer this point just a little longer? I wanna look at a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles. And for those of you that are kind of newer to the Bible, there's a kind of different section of history in the Old Testament. So 1 and 2 Samuel, actually there's a parallel book called 1 and 2 Chronicles that tell different parts of the lives of the kings and different parts of the history. And I wanna look at just one of these because I wanna show you how this works out in David's life. 
as we've walked through David's life, think of all the ups and downs that we've had. This shepherd boy who was a man after God's own heart, who slayed Goliath, who uh, the songs were written about him that uh, Saul had killed his thousands, David's killed his tens of thousands. You've got all these things that happen. He becomes king. It's this kind of Camelot glorious time. And then he falls into sin, has Bathsheba, has a child out of wedlock, is convicted of, or um, has a man that's killed, and his life begins to unravel, and his sons begin to rebel, and there's just this messiness to the second part of his life that you think, man, it would be really easy for David just to, to get stuck, for David just to become distraught, to get depressed, to, to, to just throw in the towel and not want to move forward. But I want to look at this, because this is David's kind of last charge to the nation in 1 Chronicles 28. And he assembles all the, all the officials, all the leaders, all the, uh, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, the stewards, uh, the people that, that worked for him. This is kind of a company meeting and he's gonna give them one last charge. And here's how he starts, what I think is uh, remarkable. It says, then King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed, have shed blood. Isn't that remarkable? That David, as he gets to the end, has still got this thing that he goes, man, in my heart, I wanted to build a temple. I wanted to build a grand temple that would store the, the Ark of the Covenant where we could worship. And I, I had it in my heart to do this great thing that I wanted to do. And what did God say? God said, no. Isn't that, a, isn't that a remarkable place that that's where David starts in his last speech is, I wanted to do this great thing for God and God said no. He has this unfulfilled desire. He had this dream he didn't get to do. He had this thing in his past that, and, and it isn't just that God said no, but God actually said no because you're a man of blood, shed blood and warfare. Because of something in your life, I'm telling you no, you don't get to do this thing. I love that David owns it. I love that David stands up in front of his people and says, look, I wanted to do this thing and God told me no because of some of the stuff that was going on in me. And he said no to him. And he begins by talking about what he wanted to do but wasn't able to accomplish. And can I tell you friends just in life that this will be one of the hardest things you have to deal with? That some of the things you want in life are not gonna come to fruition. Some of the desires you have, God's gonna tell you no. And not only that, but some of the things that are good things that you really want to do will never come to pass. And you're gonna to have to wrestle with that. And it's a place that I see people get stuck. And one of the reasons why I'm kind of going to it today is that it's hard to get to the last word of God's goodness if you get stuck in the past looking at your hurts and the things that didn't happen. And those things have to be dealt with. But look at me at verse, uh, verse four, the next verse. David says that God said to me, no, yet the Lord of God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. Here he focused on what God, what God allowed him to do. I love that he says that um, instead of getting stuck in the past saying, look, I wanted to do this and God said no, he says, but here's what I do know. God chose me. God took pleasure in making me king. God allowed me the privilege of doing this great thing of leading my people. And he, he shifts his focus from that which, away from that which he didn't get to do. And he shifts his focus to that which he did get to do. How God did bless him. Do you ever see how easy it is to get stuck or to overlook the good things in life, the gifts that God's given and, and the, the great things that, that we do have and how easy it is to obsess about the things we didn't get to do and the things we don't have 
and the unfulfilled drama, uh, promises, or not promises, but the unfulfilled dreams that we might have? Friends, do you have those places in your life, those things that you look at, a dream that's left unfulfilled, a recognition that you thought you deserved and never got, um, a desire for a change in your family that never really happened, a hope that you prayed for which was never answered, or um, maybe you're overwhelmed by your failures and overwhelmed by guilt and shame. And the promise of God's grace needs to speak to you and say, don't hold on to those things. Acknowledge them, own them, but then look at what God has given you and the blessings that you have and, and so that you can move forward. One man said of this, he said, as David reflects on his life and his own unfulfilled desire, he says, I want to turn my attention away from what wasn't to be and focus on the things God has done. And don't we need to do that in life? That's where we need to do. That's where we need to go. And so David in this eventually turns and he says to his son Solomon, and this is fascinating to me. Solomon's the one that will take over the kingdom for David uh, when he's gone. Solomon is the son of Bathsheba. And so God redeems even that sin that David, that, that was David's most grievous sin. And he says, but it's through this one, the son of grace that my promise will continue. And he says then to Solomon, and I think you can say this wholeheartedly because he dealt with the stuff of his past. It says, and you, Solomon, my son, you know the God of, the, of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. So David at the end is able to say, look, I didn't get everything I want in life, but God was gracious to me and he was good. And even through the one of the son that's gonna take over, I see God's restoration, his goodness and his ability to bring life out of something that was dark or light out of something that was dark and life out of something that had been a process of death. And he encourages Solomon, trust the Lord with everything you got. That's good news for us. Let's look back at 2 Samuel 23. And here's where these last two verses, I think, tie into what we just looked at. If you look at 2 Samuel 23, you get down to verses six and seven. He says, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken with a hand but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear, for they are utterly consumed with fire. This is where Johnny Cash's The Man Comes Around and starts playing in the background, right? This is a, you, you come to a place of judgment. And he says, look, there's another way of life, that there are those who don't bring blessing that brings life and growth, but there's people that bring hurt, like thorns that can't be touched with the hand. What do thorns do? Thorns don't grow up. They take over and they actually prevent the growth and um, prevent things from growing in a healthy way. So they're not only useless, but they're actually dangerous because they choke off the good growth that was intended to be there. And so it says here that they will be cast away. The reality is not everyone wants this king and this kingdom that, Jesus, that, that is offered to us under the rule of God. And so at the end of the day, the godless will stand outside the circle of the Messiah's kingdom. In that it talks about iron and a spear because you can't grab thorns by hand, so you have to use hard metal to knock it down. And immediately it says they're utterly in fire. It means on the spot, they're immediately burned and consumed with fire. So do you see the contrast in the images between verses four and five, verses six and seven? There, there's, there's an intentional contrast that's here. In verses four and five, we see this life-giving presence of a righteous king. In, in verses six and seven, you see this life-limiting presence of the worthless ones. In verses four and five, you see like dawning sunlight that raises and brings life and growth versus choking thorns that cut off life and growth. 
And this is the choice that David puts before us in his last words. He says, look, you have to choose which one you're going to, which way you're going to go. So friends, as we think about this and we think about the choice that we have to make, um, which, which trajectory, which legacy do we want to leave for those that come behind us? I want to return to the question we asked before. Friends, do you know the purpose that you exist? Do you know why you're here? Do you have a last word? Like, do you know, if you, were, if you had one chance to tell people, this is what I believe, this is the core of my being, this is the snapshot summary of my life and all that's important to me, do you have a last word that's connected to the God of the universe who rules righteously over us, who longs for our good and who wants to bring about renewal, refreshment, and joy in our lives? Is your last word the stock market? Is your last word country music? God help you. Is your last word the, the appearance of a successful family? Recognition? Image? Is your last word physical health? Is your last word um, a successful life? What's your last word? Is your last word tied to who God is? See, at the end of, uh, of life, as I get to do funerals, and there's just this stark difference I see. There's people that die without a last word. And those funerals are hard because it's people that have floated and flipped through life, but there was never this kind of rock that they could stand on and build on and hold on to that gave anyone confidence. And so as you enter that last moment, there's just this kind of uncertainty and kind of, ah, to the moment. But you go to another funeral. You go to a funeral of someone whose life has been captured by the Lord, whose life has been turned by the Lord, whose life is built on a rock that's unshakable, that's unstirring, whose life says, look, God has spoken and I know it is true, whose life says there's an everlasting promise that God has given me and my life is ordered and secure around that and I don't have to worry about it, whose life is built around something that says, man, God breathes on, on me like, like a sunlight over over sunlight and rain, over soil that causes my life to grow and my salvation and my desires to flourish. And when you go to a funeral like that, it's rejoicing. And yes, there's sorrow, but man, there's a strength to it. And there's a joy and there's a rejoicing that's radically different. And so friends, I just wanna ask you that question. Do you have a last word like David? Because we all need one. We all need to be able to say with him, for does not my house stand with God? For he has made with me an everlasting promise, ordered in all things and secure. Will he not cause to grow all my salvation and all my desire? Because it was true for David, it's true for you and me as well. Let me pray for us. Father, would you let us be those who trust in you and in your grace? And would we tell everyone who will listen of your goodness and the goodness of your rule over us? Would you cause renewal and refreshment and joy to spring up in our hearts this Easter season? Father, would you take those who may not know you, Father, would you bring them under the truth of your word that they might see the beauty of your grace? Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for this redemption sermon. For more resources and information about Redemption Church, visit redemptionokc.com and follow us on social media. Music